Welcome back to the 46th edition of Living a Whole Christian Life. This is Dr. Jim Schrader, and it's great to be back with you once again as we continue our focus on the psychological dimension. The previous two podcasts, we really focused on the five key mechanisms in turning distress into joy. But this week, we are going to focus on what it means to go in search of greater meaning, even in the midst of our difficult lives. And I think this is really interesting to think about that we all have the challenging you know, issues of our daily stressors and then also very tragic circumstances that we deal with. But one of the questions I think that has often been asked throughout history is, do people find, truly find a lot of meaning in life or is that only available for a few? And so it's interesting. There were a couple of researchers from Missouri years ago by the name of Heitzelman and King who published an article in the 2014 edition of The American Psychologist entitled, Life is Pretty Meaningful. And they went about and they did this extensive review of previous research and polls throughout the decades. And the question was, do people, even in difficult straits, find great meaning? And the answer is quite yes. In fact, they looked at those like people struggling, let's say, with alcoholism uh, for much of their life, or those who were in cocaine recovery programs or even those who were critically ill. And repeatedly, they kept finding that no matter what straits of life people find themselves in, they consider to be life very purposeful, very meaningful, that the distress itself didn't remove that sense of a deeper meaning to who they were. But here's the challenge with that, and here's the real paradox that we find. At the same time as we recognize the research here that comes through, we also recognize that polls have consistently found in the United States that only about one in five people are truly flourishing. I would argue kind of flourishing as God intends. And again, by flourishing, we're not saying that we don't have challenges and we don't have stressors. That's not really what it means by to flourish. Flourish just means that you really feel a sense of great joy and a constant pursuit of vitality in life, as opposed to languishing, which is just kind of getting by, just kind of surviving. And so, you know, while most people find great meaning in life, the reality is that, again, only about 20% or so in this country are consistently flourishing as God would intend. And so I wonder myself, I've wondered over the years, why is this the case, right? We in this country have more resources, more available to us than any probably people in the history of the world. So why would it be that so few people are truly flourishing? And so I know we've talked a lot about this throughout the podcast. We've talked about elements of the physical side and, and the social side that play into this. But if I had to really sum it down into three, what I think are key reasons, kind of the base of this pyramid to that question I would really find that there are three main reasons. And the first is what I would really call the reality of self-blame as contrasted with the reality of self-worth. Okay, I want to clarify here. So the former, meaning self-blame, is associated with a sense of kind of unworthiness and helplessness. But the latter, that sense of self-worth, speaks of an acute mindfulness of the value that each of us have as a child of God. And I want to be clear, self-worth shouldn't be confused with like narcissism or inflated self-esteem, right? When we think of narcissism, we're thinking of the attribution that the individual alone is responsible for the blessings granted and not that those blessings often come from other people and they come from all blessings, of course, come from God. 
The key aspect of self-worth recognizes that much of what produces meaning and happiness is acquired from beyond. But again, do we really harness that sense of self-worth? Do we feel that deeply throughout our days, throughout our lives, even in the midst of stressors? I would, I would argue that many times we lose track of just what great worth we have. Again, no matter how difficult things are, or even how estranged we feel that we are from other people. Because the key thing is that when it comes to self-worth, you know, a leader may influence by his or her life. A helper may influence by his or her heart. Suffers can influence by their witness, but all lives have great meaning, much of which will always be beyond our poor powers to perceive. And when we lose track of that meaning, when we lose track of that sense of self-worth, what we find is that we struggle, I think, oftentimes to pursue that ideal of flourishing. But beyond this idea of self-worth, I think is so critical. The second is that research has consistently found that attitudes must be accompanied by daily practices and environmental adjustments to provide a framework for a happier existence. When you think about the horrors of trauma, we recognize that even when you experience those, they must be directly and repeatedly contradicted by habits of contentment. Otherwise, we'll never get past those horrors of trauma. If anxiety-provoking flashbacks persist, positive experiences must allow for new memories to be formed. If hatred stews incessantly, then we have to go in search of regular acts of joy and giving that can replace this sense of hatred. And if heightened arousal remains with us, then daily measures of calming practices and peaceful encounters must move in, must become even a greater presence for us to reduce that heightened arousal. I know this seems really hard, Constant. I know that we struggle, and it's not just a willful act, right? It's We've talked about all throughout this podcast, the intelligent way to use God's design. But the reality is that we can't just have a positive attitude. We can't just have even a sense of just self-worth, as important as that is, that in order for us to really go in search of flourishing, right, as God intends, it has to be accompanied by daily practices and adjustments to our environment, whether it's, again, related to technology or whatever, to provide a framework for this existence that we're striving for. But even beyond self-blame, and even beyond the issue of habitual practice, I would argue that one factor looms above all, and we actually started with this factor early, early in the podcast. And this is the issue that serves to bury, I think, many people in the catacombs of their own selves and really enables generations of trauma to ensue, right? This is the factor that even when bad things happen, it's not that they have to perpetuate themselves throughout the generations. But when we don't get beyond, this is the third one, the factor of fear, we often find ourselves stuck, right? And again, I'm not talking about necessary fear that preserves our lives. I'm talking about that unnecessary fear and anxiety that permeates ourselves. You know, whether it's born of stigmatization or alienation or condemnation or a sense of complete objectification, the dictatorial nature of fear knows no bounds, right? It does not stop. It does not end until we pursue God's will in our lives and we pursue the practices and the sense of worth that we deserve. In order to find meaning and transcendence, we've got to find hope. And we have to find our faith wherever we find it, right? In the most unlikely of places, 
It doesn't matter. And ultimately, we know, as St. John says, only perfect love repels fear. But fear, without going in pursuit of all that we've talked about, prevents that perfect love. And without love of some kind, encountering regular joy becomes unlikely. And distress is always a window away. And so here we are again. We're asking ourselves, okay, we know the lives that we desire oftentimes, even if we don't know where that will lead. We know that we desire to flourish. I think if you asked 100 people, you know, really, do you want to be happy? Do you want to find meaning? Do you want to flourish? If they're in a sound mind, 100 people would say back, absolutely, this is what I want. But are we really treating, and this is much about what the psychological dimension is really going after, are we really treating these psychological gifts we've been discussing, and we'll discuss more in the coming weeks, as gifts like we treat the gift of prayer? I think this is one of the hard things about Christianity that's really been a struggle, is that we know the gift of prayer and other aspects of the sacraments are gifts from God. But if God created us as a psychological being, would we not treat the gifts that are inherent in our psychological personhood, right? In our psychological selves, just as the same kind of gifts to seek him out as any other gifts, right? The gifts of channeling and gratitude and forgiveness. And I want us to think about here about what Jesus did throughout his life and consider how he utilized these movements that we've talked about through his life too. And this is one thing I have to admit, I've always struggled with this idea, that it's easy to think about Jesus in very divine terms. I mean, he raised the dead. He healed the sick. He resurrected. It's hard to get away from the divine nature of Jesus. But we as Christians believe that he is also also fully human, which means that he was prone to episodes of sadness and distress and despair. And we see this throughout the New Testament. But do we forget in that fully human state, he, just like us, had to find mechanisms to work through these challenges. And I would argue that many times the things he was doing in his ministry weren't just for the betterment of other people, but were for his own betterment too. I mean, consider this, right? That if he was fully human, as we believe, then these mechanisms we've been talking about were there available for him to find greater joy or as I love Chesterton calls it, mirth. That's not a word that I've ever really come into knowing and until I started reading Chesterton, that he was also using these human mechanisms, although gifted by God, to go in search of that joy. Remember, one of the most famous verses of the Bible, he's hanging on the cross, and he utters those timeless words in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Quote, Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Have you ever considered that idea there that in his forgiveness, he wasn't just you know, spreading the salvation of the world, that he wasn't just doing what he felt was right, but that he was coming to the grips himself as a human being with what didn't make sense. That he knew that even there, a few moments away or, or hours away from dying, that it was good for him to forgive others too. That he needed to kind of rid himself of anything. There was nothing wrong with Jesus feeling the emotions that many of us feel. And so, but he knew in his purity and his desire and where he was going that he needed to let go of anything that was difficult there, anything that might prevent that sense of perfect love. And so he says that, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. But he doesn't just forgive. This is the beauty of it here. 
you know, I think many times if you look at the Bible, it seems that he channeled his energy through prayer, through fasting, through movement, through solitude, through the natural world. I would argue, although that I don't think the word channel is ever used necessarily in the New Testament, although it might be, he wasn't just obedient to God here. You know, he was doing these things because, and I think that for all of you who watched the series The Chosen, you get the sense that he's doing this very often because it's this is taxing work. This is difficult work, right? I mean, this is work that requires a ton of emotional energy. And so he realizes that, you know, sometimes in feeling his frustration, I mean, like he felt in the temple with the money changers or whatever, and feeling fatigued, he had to find a way to channel energy and channel himself through these mechanisms. But even beyond the sense of channeling, think about how many times helping others was part of that ministry. You know, there's many different verses across the New Testament that talk about the sense of, you know, helping others. And in one of those famous verses, Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And as he's constantly helping others as part of his ministry, you know, you think about this, he's not just giving the gift of healing to others of their body, but he's also giving the gift of healing of mind, of perspective, of the way that people were looking things. I would argue he's reframing. I think we've used that word earlier in the podcast, but he's putting a new frame around the same picture. These people were at that time in, in history were living some really difficult lives and had challenges with what was going on. And so he may, you know, many ways those lives remained similar, but as he was helping them put a new frame around it, he was giving them a whole new vision. And in the process, though, while he's helping others, you can't help but think that he wasn't receiving that through the sense of mattering. We talked about that earlier with that idea of helping others. In fact, you know, when he went back to his own hometown of Nazareth and he recognized that people simply weren't open to his healing, to who he truly was, he left there and he recognized that he didn't matter those people because they weren't open to him. But in the rest of his you know, ministry, as he's going further and people are coming to him and, and he's, the masses are just pleading for all sense of healing and sense of love from him, that essence of his, he's giving this to them, you have to believe that he's gaining something in return. And then you come to this idea that a number of times throughout the New Testament, Jesus gives thanks to the Father and probably many times gives thanks to other people. But for example, before feeding the 5,000, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 36, it says, And he took the seven loaves and the fishes, and gave thanks, and broke them, and gave to his disciples, and to the disciples, to the multitude. I mean, think about it. This is God. Jesus is being God. Why did he have to give thanks, you know, any more than he had to get baptized? But I think the sense is that in giving thanks, he wasn't only setting a model for what we should all do. But then in gratitude and in giving thanks to his father or to others, he recognized that it wasn't him alone who was the source of all good things, that others in this mysterious way, that the creator himself, his father himself, was obviously the source of so much good in his own life. And so he was harnessing that sense of gratitude, whether or not I think we ever think about it that way. And finally, of course, you know, we talked about the idea of transcendence. And, and Jesus, of course, himself is in many ways transcendence, but he repeatedly sought to transcend his human life, just as you know, God ordains these movements in our own life. And so 
as we just kind of go continue this idea of the psychological dimension, I, w- I would really ask you to remove that sense of compartmentalization, that sense of, well, that's, you know, me, positive thinking, and that's prayer. And I mean, all these things are very different. And I'm not saying that at times there isn't a different intent or even at times a different sense of reception. But in the end of the day, we are psychological beings and God created us in this way. And so any mechanism that creates a greater sense of joy, whether it seems to come through a psychological channel or not, is created and ordained by our Savior, by God himself. And when we seek that out in a positive, healthy way, we start to recognize that, wow, again, what great potential that we have to take on the challenges of our life. And so, in the other day, we would just say that Jesus repeatedly sought to use these movements in his own life. It's as if, you know, God ordains these movements in all of our lives. And it serves to believe that Jesus, 100% human and 100% divine, used these mechanisms to bring greater joy to himself and to all of us. So wherever you're at tonight, whatever kind of sense of distress that you might be having, if it's been a difficult week or whatever, or or just however you're feeling, I hope that you have a greater sense of hope that so much is available and so much is possible when we open ourselves to the whole Christian life. It's Dr. Jim Schrader, be holy, be whole.